Hello and welcome to Inside Business and Technology. I'm Kieran Hancock, finance correspondent of the Irish Times, and on this week's show, we're going to focus on Sean Dunn, the Carlo Born property developer who was in the news again this week after a public hearing in New York to consider his son's building project application. And we'll also be speaking with Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Suzanne will be updating us on the latest on the Anglo-Irish Bank promissory notes and the ECB's concerns with those. As Irish Times readers and podcast listeners will know, Dunn's time of late has been taken up by bankruptcy hearings in New Haven, Connecticut, where he's been questioned on his financial arrangements, in particular the extraordinary financial deal made with his wife Gail Killalay some years ago. I'm joined now on the line by Simon Carswell, the Washington DC correspondent of the Irish Times, who's been attending these hearings. Simon, thank you for joining us. Hi, Karen. Simon, we might just begin by recapping on Sean Dunn's rise to fame and the background to these hearings and why they're of particular interest to Irish taxpayers. Well, Sean Dunn, he's a major house builder. He's been, he was in business in Ireland for, for, for more than three decades. He started off building houses in a small way and went in to develop, on to develop in a much bigger way. He'd be best known for some of the developments around Dublin, St. Helens and Booterstown, a housing estate out in Lucan and also, he went into commercial property too, the likes developing the likes of the Whitewater Shopping Centre in Newbridge, County Kildare. And he'd be best known for his planned project, which never happened in the end, uh, the redevelopment of Balls Bridge in Dublin, his attempt to turn it into a kind of Knights Bridge type development of residential offices, shops, that kind of thing. And uh, that didn't work. It happened at the, at the wrong time. He prepared. He, uh, relaunched it just as the property market was turning and uh, that's really where it all came undone. He invested about 125 million of his own money in that um, and with finance uh, from Ulster Bank uh, he, he tried to turn that site into what Ulster Bank themselves described as a Dubai-esque type development and it happened at the wrong time in the market. So uh, as a result of that, he was uh, receivers were appointed to his business in 2011 by Ulster Bank and at this stage NAMA had taken over his debts with Irish Nationwide Building Society and other banks and they moved against him as well um, both Ulster Bank and NAMA got substantial judgments against him and it was on the back of those judgments that Ulster Bank tried to make him bankrupt in Ireland and to preempt that move, uh, Sean Dunn, who had moved to the U.S. in 2010, he filed for bankruptcy in Connecticut um, last year. And in his bankruptcy filing, he's listed debts of about $940 million, which is about €700 million. Euro. Uh, and really, that reflects the scale of the development that he was involved in back in Ireland. The vast majority of his debts, the vast majority of his assets are in Ireland. Um, Ulster Bank didn't like that. They then sought to make him bankrupt in Ireland as well. So he holds the unique position of being bankrupt in Ireland and in the US. Okay, and we've heard in earlier podcasts how Don agreed to transfer $100 million to his wife during a holiday in Thailand in, in exchange for love and affection. It was an extraordinary arrangement, and it's, it's at the nub of the hearings you've been tuning into. Maybe you could just give us a, a quick roundup on that. Yeah, NAMA is challenging um, Sean Dunn's bankruptcy in Connecticut. Uh, they're trying to stop him walking away from his debts and 
been discharged from bankruptcy, been given a fresh financial start. They're claiming that he has hindered, delayed or defrauded his creditors by hiding or transferring assets out of his estate, which would be for the benefit of creditors, by transferring those assets to his wife, Gail Killeley. They're also claiming that he's knowingly made false oaths or accounts um, in the bankruptcy proceedings. Um, they're in particular looking at a number of assets and, and looking at uh, two agreements that Sean Dunn claims that he reached with his wife dated back to 2005 and 2008, and that those agreements, um, under those agreements, he agreed to transfer about 100 million uh, million euro worth of assets to his wife, which represents about a fifth of his fortune back in 2005. And Nama is trying to figure out exactly what was transferred to Gail Killele, how much money that she got, and they're looking at six assets in particular. Um, the, some of the assets would be very well known. There's property in Rathfarnham, Woodtown in Dublin, uh, there's uh, Malahide rugby football clubs lands in North Dublin and then there's two houses on Shrewsbury Road in Dublin as well so they're really trying to figure out what exactly happened when the money went to Gail Killale and with a view to potentially uh, trying to unwind those transfers and get the money back for the benefit of the creditors Okay we might now listen to uh, one of the few clips that we're going to play in this podcast uh, dating uh, in relation to Sean Dunn's uh, hearings in Connecticut this one is in relation to a Swiss lawsuit which involves his wife and this extraordinary arrangement in relation to their um, to the 100 million euros that he agreed to transfer to Gail Killeley. Did Gail Killeley ever file a lawsuit against you based on your failure to fulfill obligations under the 2005 and 2008 agreements? Yes, yes, she did, yes. When did she do that? In 2010. Where was that lawsuit? In Switzerland. Were you estranged at that time? No. You were living with her at that time? Mm-hmm. And she filed a lawsuit against you? Yep. Is that unusual in Ireland and Switzerland for a wife to sue her husband? Here it would be very unusual. Can't account for the actions of other people. Um, did you defend that lawsuit? No, because I owed the debt. Um, what did she allege in that lawsuit? The money that was outstanding to her hadn't been paid. How much was that? It's the amount that's on my filing, $44 million. And uh, did she obtain an, a, a judgment? Yes. And you, and you let her obtain that judgment? Because I owed the debt. I let NAM obtain their judgment. I let Ulster Bank obtain their judgment when I owe money and can't pay it. I don't contest it. Um, have you ever made any payments on that judgment? Very small. Insignificant, I would think, in relation to the quantum of money. Prior to filing that lawsuit, had she made a demand upon you to pay the money? Yeah. How did she express that demand? How did she make the demand? I think she implied an attorney who engaged and wrote and wanted to know what was the proposal. Could I pay it? When could I see myself making payments against it? So 
the reality was at the time I wasn't in a position to make any substantial payment against it. But why couldn't that have been um, uh, handled across the dinner table? You got to ask her that. I can only I can, I, I, I can only account for my actions. Now, Simon, that's a very interesting, um, a very interesting clip there from some of the testimony that Sean Dunn has given at these hearings in the U.S. What do you think was the motivation for um, for the arrangement with Gail Killele? Well, we know the effect of the of the, the Swiss lawsuit that she took. The motivation is uh, NAM is still, and uh, the bankruptcy trustee is still trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, the voice you heard there, the American accent you heard there, was Rich Cohn, who is the Connecticut lawyer and the bankruptcy trustee, whose responsibility it is to, to is to wind up uh, the, uh, Dunn's bank, uh, bankruptcy estate. We know that uh, as a result of that uh, Swiss lawsuit, that Gail Killele got a judgment of forty four million dollars against uh, Sean Dunn, and he has listed that in his bankruptcy filings. And the reason it's of interest to Dunn's creditors is that $44 million judgment ranks ahead of a lot of the NAMA and Ulster Bank debt. So if there was a distribution of assets or proceeds from the sale of assets, uh, Gail Killele would get some money ahead of the other creditors. So that's really why Rich Cohen is trying to figure out, well, what, is, what were the arrangements, what was the situation around, the circumstances around that lawsuit? He's really trying to find out more. Um, there's still a whole lot of information that we don't know about that lawsuit. And again, that's the subject, has been the subject of, of some intense questioning during Sean Dunn's creditors meeting in December and again uh, last month. And why was the lawsuit taken in Switzerland? Uh, they were living there at the time. We're not sure again as to why it was taken, but um, they were resident in Switzerland at the time. Um, so again, we're waiting really to find out more information. And it's expected that in later uh, creditors' meetings we might find out some more information about that proceed- those proceedings. And it's quite extraordinary that one member of a married couple would sue another member of a married couple, particularly when they're not estranged. Have you ever come across that before? I haven't, and uh, certainly the bankruptcy trustee was puzzled by the whole arrangement. Um, but as the terse answers given by Sean Dunn uh, at that creditors' meeting shows, that, um, and the response of the trustees and some of the creditors, is that they're, they're, they're equally puzzled by the whole thing. Sean Dunn did make a reference to some small payments being made. Um, do we know how much? We know uh, during the bank uh, during the creditors meeting in February on February 28th, Sean Dunn did disclose that he transferred um, some money to Gail Killale after 2005. There was a sum of money of the five million he mentioned that was transferred to her. He also mentioned that he gifted her 58 million euro, and that money was used to buy Walford, which still stands as the most expensive house ever purchased in Ireland. Uh, that purchase took place in 2005. Okay, we're going to actually take a clip in relation to uh, Walford. I suppose the the tone um, that's used in this particular clip is is very interesting. We'll have a chat with Simon after that, but let's let's listen to the clip first. Is it your testimony that she received from you a transfer of 50 million euro? Uh, 60, I said. 60 million euro after the 2005 agreement? Yeah, 60, certainly. I can recall 60 in one lump or close to it. And so what can you recall about that? How did that occur? Just it was an amount of money to acquire an asset that she acquired, so it was 58, 59 or 60 million with all the costs racked up. And how did you go about, what are the details of that transaction that you 
transferred $60 million euro to her. What, what do you mean? What are the details? Well, you just testified that you transferred 60 million euros to your wife, correct? Mm -hmm. I'm asking, what were the details? Details were for the acquisition of an asset in Ireland at the time. It was, I think, 58 million was the purchase price and plus costs. I think it came close to 60 million. And it was, it was a cash purchase. There was no bank debt, so uh, it was on foot of disagreement that I transferred the money. And the property was acquired for her in her name. Where did the proceeds from this 2013 sale of Walford go? To my wife. What were your share of the proceeds? Say that again. What were your share of the proceeds? Ah, come on now. We're not putting up with this. I had zero interest in the property. I've told you that. Where did your share of the proceeds from Walford go? You sold the... Where did, your, where did your share go? Where did your share of the proceeds go? Where did your share of the proceeds go? Mr. Dodge, you said that enough. Yeah, well, come on. I'm not dealing with stupidity. Oh. It's getting a long day. You sold uh, the Walford property? I didn't sell Walford property, no. I didn't own Walford property to sell Walford property, okay? Have we a white rabbit or a black rabbit? Simon, quite a testy exchange there between uh, Sean Dunn and the person who's asking the questions. Who, who was that actually asking those questions? That was Nama's lawyer. He's a man by the name of Tom Curran. He's been really uh, taking, on, taking on most of the questions at the creditors' meeting. There is a lawyer for Ulster Bank in the room and also the bankruptcy trustee, but Nama's lawyer is really leading the questions in, this whole, in these whole proceedings. And some bizarre references to white rabbits and black rabbits and so on at the end. What was all that about? Yeah, that's Sean's Sean Dunn's attempt at humour. He had re referred to um, a previous deal that he did, the the deal and um, the property project in New York and Soho that his son is involved in, uh, and he had made reference at that time when that was raised in the December creditors meeting, and he suggested at the time that um, you know that he had volunteered that information, and that Tom Kern had not pulled a rabbit out of, out of the hat on this one. He said this, um, this is something that he disclosed. So again, it's a reference back to that statement he made back in December. Now, the Walford transaction, as we've mentioned, it was the biggest property deal uh, in the Irish market um, back during the Celtic Tiger years. 58 million euro in cash, quite extraordinary when you think about it. And for many years, we didn't actually know who the beneficial owner was. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it was um, surprised. Uh, surprised a lot of people that the, the actual owners never came out about it. And uh, now this is the first time that we heard Sean Dunn admit that he purchased the property in trust for his wife Gail Killalay, who is the ultimate beneficial owner of the property, uh, and that that transaction took place back in 2005. And this was part of that arrangement that he would transfer 100 million to her. So that that this this transaction fell under that. Um, and you heard there at the end, Tom Kern asked Sean Dunn about the arrangements around the sale of Walford. It was sold in March 2013 for €14 million. Euro. Again, there's mystery surrounding 
who uh, purchased or who is behind the purchase of that property. There is a Cypriot registered company called Yesreb Holding, which has um, emerged as the, as the owner of that property. And we know this week now that um, Dublin City Council has approved planning permission for the owners of Walford to allow the redevelopment of the site so that the, that property, Walford itself, can double in size and that can also build four new houses in the grounds. But again, this is, this is of, of considerable interest to the creditors in Sean Dunn's bankruptcy proceedings, and they did question him on it as to whether he was involved, and that's where the exchange got pretty testy uh, during the February 28th meeting. They're trying to figure out, well, has he had, has he had any role in the in the sale of this property and um he had he said during the hearing in february that his wife disposed of the property uh, but when he was asked you know well who are the new owners do you know who they are do you know who the, the people are behind the cypriot company that purchased the house and sean dunn's reply was well it could be my wife it could be my children it could be anyone um so it's not clear certainly from sean dunn's testimony uh, as to who is the purchaser of this property and Simon, you've sat through the um, various hearings. Uh, do you have the sense that the NAMA lawyers um, are actually getting to the nub of this case? I mean, just listening to the clips there, you know, perhaps some of the questions weren't the most direct ones that could have been asked. Um, have you? I mean, is it your sense that they're actually getting to the heart of this issue? I think they're getting to it very, very slowly. Um, yeah, the February meeting w- was uh, four hours long. The two at uh, the meeting meeting in December over two days was an, about uh, seven hours long. It's really taken a considerable amount of time uh, to try and get to the heart of some of these financial details. They're very, very complex. Um, Sean Dunn is very belligerent in response to some of the questions. He's really providing in, uh, information. He's drip feeding it in response to the questions from mostly from NAMA and from the trustee. Um, so it's taking time. The, the, the thing about the bankruptcy proceedings in Connecticut is they have these three, four, one meetings, which are these direct questioning of uh, the, the debtor. And they can go on for as long as the creditors want them to go, to go on. So uh, really they can continue questioning Sean Dunn for a considerable period of time to try and find exactly where, uh, when these assets were transferred, what happened to the money. And they can go back over a period of time to look back at some of the property uh, transactions that he was involved in. Part of the, the creditor's case and part of NAMA's case is, is well, when exactly was Sean Dunn insolvent? And they point to uh, the fact that in 2009 and 2010 there were issues around his solvency. He did admit in a New York Times interview in January 2009 that he could be considered insolvent. So they're claiming that these transfers took place at a time when he was insolvent and he shouldn't have transferred the money to his wife. He, on the other hand, maintains that he was solvent then. He maintains that he was, his, his fortune was worth in the order of about $500 million back in 2008 and that he had, a, he had the financial wherewithal to transfer the money to his wife and there is no issue around that. Now, Dunn's attitude towards this process is also apparent in discussions of transactions around land in South Dublin that once housed the social club of the Irish Glass Bottle Company. Let's have a listen to this clip. You don't know anything about the transaction. But, and Ross Klein was the best person to talk about, talk with about that transaction, well, is that uh, correct? You're waffling and making stupid statements that I didn't say, okay? So when land changes in Ireland, there's a registry of deeds, yeah. okay? So you can go to the so registry of deeds. Did you sell the property or did you transfer it to your wife? I sold it to my wife. There was a monetary value put on the contract to reduce my indebtedness to her and to reflect what I believe or the value the property was valued at on the day and sorry just for the record as well this was an asset that Ulster Bank held a charge over and in December 2008 
because they were so happy with my valuation on that day that they released a charge over the asset, gave it back to me, and I could have done anything I liked with it. I could have bought a horse with it. I could have went to Vegas with it. And because I owed my wife money, I transferred it to my wife. Are you still the registered owner of those lands? If I transferred it to my wife, you can take it. I'm not the registered owner. You're not the current registered owner? You can take it that if you dispose of land in Ireland, you no longer become the registered owner. Who is the current, currently the registered owner of those lands? The last I heard my wife was, unless she's disposed of it. You'll kill away that in her, her name? Far, yeah, as far as I know, she bought it in her personal name. Now, Simon, um, he mentioned the monetary value there in relation to that uh, IGB um, social club land. Do we know exactly how much? He did mention that the land in December 2008 was worth €3 million. Euro. He didn't get into how much uh, his wife paid for the land uh, when it was transferred to her. This refers to a 50% share of the glass, Irish glass battle site land in Clansky. Um, and he did say during the proceedings, uh, during the hearing in February, that the other 50% was owned by another property developer, Sean Mulryan of Ballymore Properties. And he was asked, well, does Gail Killale still own the 50% share that he transferred to her? He said last he heard she, she did. Okay. What's NAMA ultimately hoping to achieve from this process and how much longer is it likely to take? Well, I think that they're looking to ultimately to try, if they can, to unwind some of the property transfers, some of these very valuable, well, certainly were once were very valuable lands that were transferred to Gail Killale uh, and the monies that were transferred to her to get that back for the benefit of the creditors. Um, now, the the liabilities were well in excess of the assets that, that Sean had listed in his bankruptcy filing. So NAMA would really have some way to go to try and recover um, all of the debts. Uh, I think the scale of the debts reflect the fact just how bankrupt Sean Dunn is and um, how insolvent he is. So they're trying their best to see if they can get some of these assets back. Um, and this is, this is why this questioning is, is so intense. They're trying to find out exactly where it is. Uh, much of the questioning is focusing on where exactly are the books and records of all of these business transactions. And um, NAMA is saying they, 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 they have problems trying to find out details of these transactions. And Sean Dunn's defense throughout these hearings has been, well, I ran a very big business. You know, at its peak, I was selling property worth about 700 million euro. He built and sold about 4,000 properties in Ireland over his career and employed about 1,400 people. And he really didn't get into the detail personally. He wasn't involved in what happened in every single transaction. And NAM is trying to get to the bottom of that and try and find out where it is. Sean Dunn says, well, you, NAM, have the books and records. It's not something that I have, but he has directed them to his former financial advisors to get try and get the records from them. That's going to be a very long process, and it's going to take considerable time to get to the bottom of some of these transactions. And finally, Simon, uh, in New York, uh, Sean Dunn's son, John, has been seeking to uh, proceed with a residential complex in Soho, um, but he seems to have received a bit of a setback. What's the latest there? Yeah, well, this, this relates to this property um, in Soho on Grand Street. It's in a fairly fashionable district in Manhattan. Um, this came up during the December creditors meeting, um, and NAMA is maintaining that 
done is calling the shots in American property businesses, which he says are owned by his wife. Uh, and he has referred to another company called TJD21, which he says his wife and his son, John, don't have an ownership interest in. And this week, for the first time, there was a public planning, uh, planning hearing uh, on their plans for what uh, John Dunn and Gail Killey want to do on that property. Um, they're looking to build a five-story residential building with, with four apartments. There's a bit of a setback this week where the city planners said, well, we want a much bigger backyard than you're proposing. Um, and TJD, John Dunn's company, has said, well, if we do that, it won't be feasible. Uh, and they provided some financial details and filings to the, to the city planners, which show that they'd lose out on a profit of almost $3 million. They're expecting to make a profit of about $3.4 million, according to the filings that they've made. So they're saying if the city planners insist on what they want to be built there, they really they can't go ahead because the, the project isn't financially viable. And that's going to be heard again uh, next month at a further hearing. So we'd like to hear more details about the revised plans or what the uh, Dunn family want to do with that property. Okay, Simon Carswell, Washington DC correspondent of the Irish Times. Thank you for joining us. Now, in February of last year, the government trumpeted a deal with the European Central Bank in relation to the Anglo-Irish Bank promissory notes, which were due to cost the state €3 billion each March. The deal saw Ireland exchange about €25 billion in promissory notes payable over an eight-year period for longer-term bonds that would be repaid between 2038 and 2053. Taoiseach Enda Kenny said it would save Ireland about €20 billion in borrowing costs over the next 10 years. It now seems that there might be a fly in the ointment. Suzanne Lynch, the European correspondent of the Irish Times, revealed this week that the ECB has raised concerns about the arrangement and that Ireland is now facing pressure to repay the bonds sooner. Suzanne, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Now, this deal on the promissory notes uh, looked done and dusted about a year ago. So why is the ECB now getting involved and why is it taking so long for it to express its concerns? Yes, well, as you said there, it was February last year when this deal was finally struck after months of negotiations between Dublin and Frankfurt. But even at the time, people remember uh, ECB President Mario Draghi said he'd take note of the deal. Um, But he did say at the time that the ECB would have to review it um, as part of its kind of annual inquiries into monetary financing in each country. And what's happening now is the ECB is ready to sign off on its annual report for, for last year. And so it it's gathering information about the promissory note deal. Right, and what action might the ECB take? Well, I mean, sources were saying here in um, in Europe that, you know, the deal is done. It's, it's already taken place. Um, so in that sense, you know, it can't be it can't be reversed. But what seems to be happening now is that the government or the central bank in particular is going to come under pressure to sell some of these bonds. Um, part this had been a, a kind of crucial element to the deal, um, the, these new bonds, how long the, the central bank would hold them. And it now seems that um, a lot of the ECB governing council are pushing for the central bank to offload them maybe at a quicker pace. Um, a quicker, quicker pace than they would have thought and this will go some way to kind of reassuring um, the doubters and there are quite a few few doubters it's not just you know people think Germany has, is resistant to this um, the Bundesbank chief was on the record saying he wasn't happy about this last year but I'm told it's not just him a lot of the governing council uh, members are not entirely happy they're just not comfortable it's a very conservative institution and this principle of this principle of monetary financing is seen as sacrosanct, really, to the ECB's policy and mandate. What impact might this have on the exchequer finances here and the budgetary arithmetic in the run-up to the next election, given that tax cuts have been mooted in recent months? 
Well, I'd say the actual deal itself will probably not unravel, but if the Irish Central Bank felt under pressure to unload some of these bonds at a quicker pace than they're comfortable with, that could have an issue. I mean, people in the market are saying now is a good time, there is an appetite for sovereign bonds. We see across these Eurozone peripheral countries that there, there is an appetite. Um, so in, in that sense, you know, it might, be, it might be a good time, but they have to, tr- to tread carefully on this. Um, and, you know, the central bank don't want to be in a position where they're pushed into going out to the market um, a bit sooner sooner than they would have thought. And is Ireland fighting a rearguard action? Is there any uh, furious lobbying going on to uh, lead things as they are? Well, we're back to the situation again, this broader debate. Um, you know, Ireland was given this promissory note deal from the European side saying this is a good deal for Ireland. But the other side of the coin is Ireland is saying, well, actually, we took a hit for Europe. We weren't allowed burn bondholders, so we deserve this. I mean, particularly at the moment, there, there's still quite a bit of sympathy for Ireland's plight, particularly at the moment as the as European finance ministers are finalising rules on new bail-in rules so that in future, future bank bailout bondholders will be hit. So there's a real sense that Ireland, you know, was unfairly um, made to to burn bondholders. If we had a banking collapse from now on, that wouldn't happen. So I think there is kind of sympathy for Ireland um, among other countries. But when it comes to the ECB, they still see their role as you know, this monetary function, or you know, you know that's their that's their role. Interest rates and keeping things and keeping inflation uh, within under two percent. And if they're seen to stray into anything to do with government financing of, of exchequers, they're just uncomfortable. So that seems to be um, that seems to be the the barrier for Ireland at the moment. Yeah, Suzanne. What a lot of Irish people probably want to know is why the government just doesn't simply tell the EU and ECB to get stuffed on this matter. Uh, after all, Anglo and Irish nationwide went bust, and uh, we shouldn't have to repay this money. Well, at the, at the end of the day, we're still dependent and we're dependent on ECB financing, you know, and this idea that the bondholder, the decision's already done, unfortunately. So, I mean, the ECB will say, well, I mean, you've already decided to to burn the bondholders. I mean, so we are in a situation of, well, what's more that can be done? But I suppose what, again, if you look politically, Will Ireland be able to use this as a way of getting further debt relief? It's obviously still trying to campaign for retrospective direct recapitalisation of its banks and the ESM. And, you know, whether it can still use this as a tool maybe to get something else. And that would be kind of one of the key aspects of this. Because, yes, the deal is, is done and dusted in that sense. Okay, Suzanne Lynch, thank you for joining us. That's it for this week. Uh, I'd like to thank Simon Carswell, Suzanne Lynch, producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer James Davis for their contributions to the show. Thank you for listening. Inside Business and Technology will be back next week with more insights into the world of Irish business. 